0: Welcome once again to Grace Church this morning, here in person and online. My name is Pastor Matthew, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to Ruth now, Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, and before we dive into this remarkable story let's pray together father this morning all over our valley there are people gathering together to hear the proclamation of your word which points to the majesty and glory of who you are we are grateful for fellowships like temple baptist church where pastor john will be preaching this morning for the Vineyard and Pastor Jason, for Clearview Community Church and Pastor Zach, for Cornerstone and Pastor Charlie. Our valley is blessed by these congregations and these men, and we ask your blessing upon them today, that their services might bring people one step closer to Jesus. And as we turn to your word for us here at Grace we ask that the Holy Spirit would illuminate your words that he would show us the wealth of glory that lies beneath the old familiar stories, that he would teach us the depth of meaning to be found here, that he would raise us to heights of aspiration for the examples that we see here, that he would lift us to the summit of faith that is displayed by Ruth, and that he would open our eyes to behold wondrous things that would transform us as we listen. Yes, and very amen. In Jesus' mighty, mighty name. Ruth chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Melon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died. And Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah. And the other, a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, Both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. And then Naomi heard in Noab that Yahweh had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes. It's time to engage our imaginations again. We need to get ourselves on a dusty road to Judah this morning on today of all day Mother's Day with a mom and two daughters we need to picture this story in our minds as we read as we listen and get out on this road trip with them. now normally for us a road trip would mean the convenience of an automobile air conditioning praise Jesus for GM for them They have no such conveniences. Having heard of the sovereign kindness of God to turn back a famine owing to the repentance of his people and that crops were growing again and that food stores would be replenished and the land had returned to a state of rest and restoration, Naomi is drawn home. So she departs in what would remarkably be late April or early May on a dusty road with blue skies and I picture a bright sun and warm temperatures towards home with two daughters in tow. But on the way, verse 8. I'm not sure how far they traveled, but I imagine that Naomi is walking with the girls behind her. She's thinking about what it'll be like to walk through those gates in Bethlehem, in Judah, to see old familiar friends and to face the questions that would invariably arise. Why had they departed? What had transpired since? Where is her husband? What of the boys? What was it like in Moab? How could you have gone? Who are you to think you can just return now that things are good again? And who is this with you? Are these Moabite women? What? They're your daughters? And those thoughts are like a smelling salts for her mind, awakening her to the reality of what she would be pulling Ruth and Orpah into. And I imagine she thinks, how can I do that? Because she knows what it's like to leave a home, a family and structures you know, a culture and religious system and ethnic identity that is yours. How hard it can be, how excruciating it has been for the last 10 years. And now she's dragging her daughters into that very same kind of reality. These girls who have shown such kindness to her and to her sons. So she commands them, go back. She turns around. Go back to your mother's homes. In other words, she releases them from the hold that marrying into their family line had on them. I'm releasing you. Go back under your mother. I'm giving you the ability to start over, to have a husband and children and a home. So desirous of this is she that she prays to Yahweh, asking God to bless them. And may Yahweh reward you for your kindness to your husbands and me, verse eight. May Yahweh bless you with the security of another marriage. Don't miss what this weary older, probably in her mid-50s woman is calling down the richest of all possible blessings of Yahweh upon her daughters. You see, Naomi has experienced a very unique kindness. You see that word there, a kindness. God bless you for the kindness. The word there is an incredibly rich word in Hebrew culture, literally chesed. And the depth and meaning of this emotion, it it can't even be communicated in one English word. It needs a paragraph. It It is a term of endearment and commitment. It pulls in all the attributes of God, like love and covenant faithfulness and mercy and grace and kindness and loyalty, demonstrated in specific acts of devotion, covenant, promise, Binding. That's what Naomi has felt from these girls. Loyal love. And she's been deeply moved and impacted by it. So much so that she's now calling for her God. Yahweh, bless these girls. With your chesed love. Your covenant faithfulness. Your commitment. And it's not in just some vague sense. She doesn't just pray, God, just be with them. She prays very specifically that they would enter into another kind of security, another marriage. Because that's what widows need. Widows in the ancient Near East, young widows without a man to provide and protect and care for them are left in a very dangerous place. And where you find security as a widow in the ancient Near East is inside of a marriage. And it's, it's a very particular kind of security. A place where one may rest, not in a kind of just relaxing, but a rest from anxiety and worry, a, a peace, a settledness. That's what Naomi prays for these girls She doesn't want them connected to her life now. That could just be, it may just be a life of wandering. A life unprotected. Why would you come with me? It's a beautiful thing she's doing, isn't it? And yet this beautiful wish tears them up. For, verse 9, she kisses them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. And so do you see them there on the road, an older woman in her 50s and two younger women in their early 20s huddled together in the dust and the wind, weeping. And the girls with tear-stained cheeks and probably runny noses speak through their sobs, no way, Naomi, Naomi, We want to go with you. We want to go with your people. Don't send us away. In other words, we we don't care about the potential of what we're leaving behind. We've loved having you as our mom. We've loved our lives together. We love you. And we're going with you. But Verse 11, Naomi replied, Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? Of course you wouldn't do that. You see, she's tying into what would culturally be true. She, she's raised a Jew. She knows that what, what God had said is that, that another brother in the home should take when a brother dies and a woman becomes widowed, another brother in the home takes on that widow and any children and bears responsibility for caring for them. But there are no other heirs. Malon and Killian have both died. And so now he says, Do you, are you saying that you're gonna wait around For another heir to rise up in our family line? It's ridiculous. But there's even a bigger problem and reason that Naomi has in mind. Verse 13. Go because things are far more bitter for me than for you. Because Yahweh himself has raised his fist against me. In other words... You don't want to hitch yourself to this train. I understand it would be hard for you to go home, to start over, to wonder if there is a man in Moab who would take you in, having been married to Israelites, to hope that you could be accepted back into your clan and community. I know that that will be hard, but do you not see that your prospects with me are far more bitter, Mine is a far more bitter situation. Yahweh himself has raised his fist against me. And here she ties into the rich language of her own history, seeing that Yahweh had raised his hand against Egypt, Exodus 9, had raised his hand against her forefathers in their rebellion, Deuteronomy 2, had raised his hand against Judah in her own recent experience for their rebellion, Judges chapter 2. What Naomi is saying is in the same way that he had in all those times, Yahweh has made me his enemy. She's looking at this girl and saying, is that what you want? You want to be in league with an enemy of almighty Yahweh. You don't want this. And again, they wail and weep and Orpah in what honestly could be considered a very wise and sensible and logical move, right? The narrator does nothing to say anything negative about what Orpah does here. Listens to the argument of her mom and does the same exact thing that Elimelech and Naomi had done years before. She prefers Moab over Israel. She kisses Naomi goodbye, rises to her feet, and begins the journey home. And now we're left with Ruth and Naomi still huddled together on the ground, and Ruth faces a choice. What will she do? Will she go back with her sister-in-law who is now trailing off in the distance back to all she knows, back to the safety of her mother's home, back to the possibility of a husband and little kiddos and security and peace, rest? She's released. She could say, hallelujah, she didn't take us up on this. And she could just go. But she doesn't. She doesn't abandon Naomi. Rather, she will press in and double down on the very chesed love that Naomi had just praised her for in verse 8. And she will cling and hold fast to her mother, verse 14. Can you just see her just holding on? And Naomi tries to, I just picture her trying to wriggle free like, Look! (laughs) Do you see? Ruth, look! Look at your sister. She's gone back to her people and her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth will have none of it. And I don't think this this is any whim for Ruth. She has thought this through, and it's going to be clear in the words that you're about to hear. She knows what she needs to do. And you know what she's going to do? She's going to press into the hard and the awkward and the pain. Because that's what loyal love does, doesn't it? That's what love does. It presses into the hard and the awkward and the pain. It doesn't allow someone hurting, someone in pain, someone acting irrationally and illogically because of their deep pain Loyal love, covenantal love, familial love doesn't allow one to be pushed away. And I believe Ruth is about to display that she understands why Naomi is the way that she is. I think Ruth understands the pain that has shaped her and molded her and formed her and broken her and wearied her. I mean, we gotta think about this, right, family? Imagine you're Naomi, okay? Wife, imagine your husband has just died very recently. Imagine, imagine mom, and maybe there's a mom here today who's lost a child, and you can relate very well to her pain. Maybe you've lost a husband, and you can relate to her pain. For some of us, we just have to imagine it. Imagine what that's like. Imagine how she feels. And you know that that person needs help and needs encouragement and support, and they're pushing you away. When you're in a place like that, don't you wish you had someone who wouldn't be pushed away? Isn't it fantastic when someone pushes through all of your objections and clings to you and loves you and hugs you and holds you and takes you out for dinner or to a movie or whatever and just won't go? Ruth has lost a husband herself. Don't forget that. She's a widow herself. And she is providing here a shining example of daughter love. And this is not, friends, this is not drippy sentimentalism. This is not not like some kind of rom com movie, you know, an orchestra is playing in the background. This is convictional commitment from this woman. Listen to her. Do not ask me to leave you and turn back. It's a command it's stern. I will not abandon you. I will not go back. I don't want to hear about it again. Wherever you go, I will go. I am turning my back willingly on my country. I am saying goodbye in this moment to everything I know. I leave it behind to be with you, come what may. I am not going anywhere ever. Wherever you live, I will live. I am making my home with you and my life with you fully aware that it's going to be hard. We're widows. We're alone. We lack safety and protection. I get that, but I will not leave you to face it alone. I will make my place with you even if we have no place, no prospects, nobody, because we will at least have each other. Your people will be my people. I don't know what your people will think of you, but I do know what they will think of me, and it will not be good. I understand I will not be popular, that I will not be welcomed, that I am an unclean foreigner of an enemy ethnicity. I know there will be opposition to me and even attacks on me, but your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Despite what you say. <laughs> Think about what Naomi just said about this God that Ruth is now swearing fealty to. He's my enemy. Yeah, that God will be my God. (gasps) That's kind of crazy. Are you with me? Okay, I'm just checking in. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Naomi, my commitment to you will not end in your death. I am all in. I will be buried where you are buried. I make my life with you fully and completely. And may Yahweh punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. That's a pretty stunning group of statements, isn't it? Isn't Ruth amazing? I mean, what would you give as a person struggling or even not struggling? to have someone like that in your life committed to you like that in your life. I, I'm not sure if Ruth has converted to Yahweh at this point, but she very well very well may have. Because I'm not sure how to describe what she is doing here, the risk that she is taking here in anything except terms of faith and love. She is moving into the hard. She is moving into the awkward. She is loving someone in deep pain who is trying to push her away. She is walking into incredibly uncertain circumstances. She is displaying faith. I remember a few years back reading the book Crazy Love by Francis Chan. Maybe some of you have read it as well. In that book, Francis Chan says this, Back when I was in Bible college, a professor asked our class, what are you doing right now that requires faith? That question affected me deeply because at the time, I could think of nothing in my life that required faith. I probably wouldn't be living very differently if I didn't believe in God. In other words, faith or no faith, i was just kind of living this way. Faith didn't really matter. My life was neither ordered nor ordered nor affected by my faith like I had assumed it was. Furthermore, when I looked around, I realized I was surrounded by people who lived the same way that I did. Life is comfortable when you separate yourself from people who are different from you. Did you hear that? Life is comfortable when you separate yourself from people who are different than you. Isn't this what most of Americans currently are in the pursuit of at this moment right now, trying to get with people that are exactly the same as they are? Politically, socioeconomically, geographically. Ruth does exactly the opposite. (laughs) She goes to a people that are incredibly different than her. Life is comfortable, Francis Chan again, when you separate yourself from people who are different from you. That epitomizes what my life was like, characterized by comfort. But God doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he doesn't come through. In other words, I want to live the kind of life that can only be explained by faith. I want people to look at me and go, how in the, what? And then I go, Jesus That's what, is now what Ruth is doing in this stunning display of loyal love. It looks like faith to me. And what is Naomi's response? Have you, have you seen this in the story before? I saw something here that I'd never seen before. What does she do? What does Naomi do as she stands there on a dusty road hearing words that probably every Christian has heard since then? This memorable pronouncement of loyal love. Words that have echoed down through history. I mean, coffee cups and t-shirts in Christian bookstores have been sold by the oodles with these terms on them coming out of Ruth's mouth, right? And what, and we just like, we're amazed at it. We hear it at weddings. Like, it just blows our minds. What is Ruth's response? nothing. (laughs) She says nothing. Not a word that we know of. And maybe it is that she just slumps her shoulders realizing she's not going to win this argument with her daughter-in-law. And she starts walking and Ruth follows. But Naomi is not done talking. Verse 19. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Do not call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. Tapping into the story that Paul read for us. She's tapping into that. They all know the story. They get what she's saying. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has caused me to suffer and the Almighty, excuse me, has sent such tragedy upon me? So I was really tempted on Thursday writing the sermon to stop right here, pray and say amen and wait until next week and do a completely completely full sermon, just on this alone, because of how much we could do a series in what we just heard. But I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to give you a whole nother sermon, okay, for those that want to get to brunch. But I did want to at least deal with one main thing here, because I think it's important to see, the reason I didn't, feel like we could do another sermon is because the narrator has put these two things so close together and he wants us to see something, I believe, between a daughter's love and a mother's pain. So here's how I'd like to tackle our remaining time. I want to ask a couple questions. Namely, how do we handle or process our pain? What do we do with our pain? And importantly, What do we do with our pain in relationship to our belief in the sovereign kindness of God? How do we process pain and how do we do that in view of the sovereign kindness of God? When Naomi is thrust into a community that had been familiar to her, had known her, and asked, maybe with shock, maybe this question, is it Naomi Maybe that's because she is so broken and so wearied and so affected by the last 10 years of her life. I mean, think about this. You know those pictures that we see of presidents before they go into office and then after they come out of office, right? And they look like they've aged like 20 years in four years, right? Like why? Because that's what stress does to a person. It it affects them Physically, and maybe they're shocked. Maybe the question is, is this really Naomi? Like, maybe she looks that bad because of how hard it has been for her. And when Naomi hears her name in the context, right, to imagine the memories that are flooding back the community that she had lived, the familiar faces, and the people that she knew. And now they're asking this question this way. And she hears her name, which means, Pleasant one, delighted one. I think that the name feels like a slap in the face, and so she just recoils against. So like, don't call me. Don't call me that. Like, my life represents that not at all anymore. I'm changing my name to be in line with who I am now. Call me Mara. Because he's been bitter. Do you see the first thing that she does here? With our question, how do I process pain? Do you see the first thing she does? She shares it. Let's not be too hard on Naomi. She's mourning. She's grieving. My goodness. You know, the older I get the more I realize how impatient we are with each other. We think, well, it's been 10 years. What's she she sad about still? I'd love to ask a widow in this church who's had a husband gone for more than 10 years. I'd love to ask her, do you still feel sad sometimes that he's gone? What do you think she's gonna say? You're darn right I do. There are nights when I sit there alone and the tears start flowing out of nowhere. She's giving voice to her pain. The wounds are feeling fresh all over again. Because this place, that, when she left this place, she had a man and she had sons. And now she's here and she has nothing. She's had to swallow bitter pills. And what she's doing here is not wrong family speaking for myself even at 53 I feel I have so much to learn about processing pain I think generally we're just not very good at it we're not, we're not good at lament I love how Paul set us up this morning in describing those songs that was he's being a good shepherd there because we're just not used to even coming in here and singing songs that might be a little more weighty are we we to give voice to pain. Many of us come in here really happy this morning, but some people come in here this morning in deep pain. And sometimes maybe they feel like, there's not a song that we're singing that expresses how I'm feeling. It's hard to be open. It's easier to stuff things down. It's hard to be open in safe spaces if we can even find them. It's easier, isn't it, to just ask if someone says how you doing? What do we say? What's the common response? How you doing? Fine. Fine. One of my favorite all-time commercials ever was in this conference room and there's a few guys standing around and they one of the guys says to the other guy, "How you, hey, Bob, how you doing? And he goes, you know, I got this rash right here, and uh, it's really been, doesn't that look, and the, you can see the other guy's just like, whoa, 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 dude. A lot of times the reason we say I'm fine is because we don't really want to really know how someone is doing. We don't really want to know. Now, now listen, I get it. There's a certain kind of culture like hi and you say hi. So I'm not, I get, Don't. Feel, I don't want you walking out of here feeling all guilty because you never share truly with someone. But if someone's a little closer and it's a safe space and they ask how you're doing and it's been a crappy day, say it. The second thing to notice about Naomi is that she places her pain in the context of her theology Now, let me get rid of another Christian phrase for us here at Grace. Sometimes you may have found yourself saying, well, you know, I'm not really a theologian. Yeah, you are. Everybody who believes in Jesus is a theologian. Theology just means the study of God. Do you you think about God? Welcome to theology. I now grant you a certificate. You're all theologians. And what we need to do, therefore, over the course of a lifetime of slow and steady plodding growth under the Scriptures, coming to gatherings, being in community groups, is to build a framework of theology that we place the problems and the joys and the sufferings And the successes of our lives into that framework of theology. And that's what Naomi is doing. She believes in a very personal God who has a name. She uses it twice here. Don't miss this. Yahweh Almighty, Almighty Yahweh in your text. Yahweh. He is. He exists. He relates to her as a reality. And he does so over and over again in covenantal chesed love. And she believes in the power and the might and sovereign control of that same relatable God, El Shaddai, Almighty. He exerts control over all things and places and people. And because of those two realities, she understands that the bitterness and emptiness and suffering and tragedy in her life is not accidental. It hasn't happened outside the realm of his power. If it had, how horrible a reality that would be. If we take anything in our lives, I believe it's a horrible reality to take anything in our lives and place it outside of the sovereign control of God because then I'm only left to think, what can he do about it if it wasn't there in the first place? But a problem remains here for us, right? He's sovereign over the He's in control of the suffering. He rules over the pain. So Naomi is right It's good theology. He's brought this. And yet she's hopeless, it seems. Doesn't it? Despairing. Here's the thing. I don't think Naomi has worked her pain and the sovereign kindness of God all the way through quite yet. And and we want to be patient with her. And each other. Right, she hasn't. It seems that she is interpreting her God and her circumstances into a conclusion that God is out to get her. I can remember a time very recently, recently in my life when I looked at the circumstances of my life, what felt like the burnt-out rubble of my life. And the only conclusion that I could come to is I think God either doesn't like me all that much or he may even hate me. And maybe you've been there. That it's so bad and it's so, whatever the thing is, it's so insufferable and you look up at him and you think, you must hate me. But she didn't remember her own story of Mara, did she? She didn't remember that the bitterness could be turned to sweetness. She didn't remember that the same God who had brought them to that place of bitter water was the God who heals. Her own story. She's unable to see the possibility of any good in her pain or any good in her life at all. Consider this. She is saying, God has brought me back empty. Who's standing next to her family? And what she just said, isn't that what pain does? Sometimes pain blinds us to the good, even inside of our pain. It's so hard. We can't see it. She can't see Ruth. I'm with you. Wherever you go, I will go. I'll live where you live. I'll die with you. And it's understandable, right? right. So we got to keep being patient with her while we push on her. Because, because we've been there. We've been blinded by pain and trial, wailing and weeping, which is why we need others, isn't it, family? Isn't this why the Ruths are so incredibly vital. I have said so often to people in pain in my study and I'm talking to them and they they can't see it. They just can't see him. They can't see goodness. So often, you know what I've said? I'm going to have enough faith for the both of us right now. Okay? You can borrow my faith. I'm going to have enough for both. I see that you don't believe. I got you. I ain't going anywhere. Borrow some of my faith. And then God... God brought me to a point in my life where some stupid disciple of mine turned that sucker right back on me. And I'm like, he he doesn't love me. He doesn't care for me. Oh, things are going to be great, Matthew. No, they ain't. Some were sawing too. That's me. I can see it. And then then this friend said, I'm going to have enough faith for the both of us. Oh, man, using my own stuff on me. But that's what we need, isn't it? We need Ruth types who won't get pushed away easily. That's what we need to be for each other, Grace. Don't let people push you away. Be like Ruth. Aren't we a place where anybody can grow? We know it takes time for complicated people in deep pain to work that out. So we were talking about this story. I'm landing the plane now, for those of you doubting. We were talking about this story at staff meeting this week. And something Pastor George said, and, you know, goodness, isn't Pastor George so good at walking with people in pain? My goodness. Something he said struck me, and I wrote it down. Here's what he said. We've got to help people turn from the why into what am I going to do with this? That's good right there. That's gold. We've got to help people turn from why into what am I going to do with this? Why, when we ask the question why, okay, there's this pain. Why? Why can leave us stuck? Why can leave us bitter? Why can leave us feeling like God is out to get us? Why will very rarely get fully answered in this life because we do not see as God sees, and He so often does not give us His view. But what am I going to do with this? Now, that can get us somewhere, family. Embracing the pain can actually bring healing. Isn't that interesting? Embracing what the pain may do in our lives for our lives can help us move forward one step closer to Jesus. Pastor George sounds so much like Jesus. Do you remember the story of Jesus and the disciples and they're on the road and there's a blind man? And what did the disciples ask? They ask, why? Why, Jesus? Why is there this pain? Why is there this trial? Why is there this suffering in this man's life? And do you know what Jesus does? He doesn't let him ask the why question. He gives it to what purpose? And his reply is that the works of God might be made manifest in him. So, among the many reasons that God may be using pain in your life right now, what if one of them is to manifest His glory in you in how you deal with and walk through that pain? Trusting Him, reliant on Him, more aware of Him, dependent upon Him. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain writes this. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Not why, but to what purpose? Ian Duguid says this. God sometimes takes away the things that have become precious to us because they are supporting us in our life of sin and hardness of heart toward Him. So, to wake us up sometimes, maybe it's sin. Alternatively, He sometimes takes away things that were good in themselves. So, it's not a sin issue because he wants to use our lives as a powerful testimony of the sufficiency of his relentless grace in the midst of our weakness and loss. And I'm not saying that's easy, okay? He's not saying that's easy. Invariably, though, he has not brought these trials and losses into our lives. Here's what we can be sure of. Because he hates us or is seeking to afflict us or get even with us for our sin. On the contrary, if we are his children, if we believe, worship team, would you come up? So this, you see, the the whole story has been headed towards this. All of it's headed towards this right now. The issue is, do we trust him? Are we casting ourselves on the mercy of God as you saying this morning? Are you believing that he's going to bring you into the promised land? That you know. Are you saying goodbye to all the afflictions and the trials, knowing they'll be in the rearview mirror one day? Because you believe in Jesus. This story is about Naomi and Ruth, but most importantly, it's about Almighty God and his kindness in your life, even in the midst of your pain, because he wants you to receive more of himself. Naomi can't see it. Paul said it so well at the beginning. Right where, folks, the story isn't over yet. It's only been chapter one. So we're leaving her right there. She can't see it yet. Her story's not done and neither is yours. Yours. She can't see that the sovereign kindness of God has been there all along. It's been there in the departure of a famine. It's been there in the loyal love of a daughter who refuses to abandon her mother. And as the story closes, it's there again. Verse 22, they arrived in Bethlehem in late April, early May, at the beginning of barley harvest. Do you think that's an accident? I don't right at the beginning of barley harvest, a season of plenty and maybe hope.